Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times. I'm delighted to be here with Scottish travel writer Jamie Lafferty, who's reported from seven continents, about 100 countries, and he did it all very much in his own way, in his own style. Jamie, about 15 years ago or so, I'm trying to do the math here, when you first started out as a travel writer, your your mother gave you a piece of advice. She said, just say yes to everything. How has that influenced your journey so far? Uh, um in about a thousand, a thousand different ways. Um, sometimes good, sometimes outright dangerous. Um, <laughs> it's a policy that I've actually tried to dial back on a little bit. Um, I turned 40 this year and I think if I keep saying yes to everything, I'll be dead by 41. So I need to calm down a little bit with that stuff. But certainly um, there was a period in my in my late 20s and early 30s where the stuff that I was doing, the, the work stories that I was doing were often very experiential and doing lots of things for the first time. And if that meant going madly outside of my comfort zone, then so be it, because the advice was to say yes to to everything that came along. One of the, I guess, infrastructures that allowed you to have a lot of cool things to say yes to was when you were writing for, was it an in-flight magazine based in Dubai? Yeah, that was all kind of a surprise, really. I had been, uh, I actually started out at an arts and culture desk at my local newspaper. Um, not local, it's a national newspaper, but I was on the arts and culture desk there. So I was doing gig reviews, radio reviews, things like that. But it was only ever part time. And I did it for a couple of years and I felt I'd had some decent training and I wanted a full time job. And most of the places, uh, media outlets, um, institutions in London, they wanted three years of experience and I only had two. I think probably three years of experience or the right family connection. I think that's one of those two things and you can get a break in, in London media. And um, so I, I just was looking for a full-time job and I saw there was one advertised for a features writer on a magazine um, that was being published in Dubai uh, I was only 25 at the time, so I didn't really know anything about Dubai itself, the UAE, um, but I did know I wanted to write features. Um, that was my, that's the thing I've always been most interested in is slightly longer form journalism, whether it's mine or um, other people's. Um, and so I applied for this job. I didn't get it. Somebody else got it. And then that person's partner refused to move to the Middle East. So I was first reserve. And it was only then that I found out that it was an in-flight magazine for Etihad Airways, who are actually based in Abu Dhabi, but the publishing house was was in Dubai. And what that did had two two main effects was give me a, a decent salary um, and then sort of ring fence monthly travel for me uh, for those guys. Of course, um, in-flight magazines, you know, it's not the New Yorker. You are you're writing ultimately to sell more seats on more planes. Um, and also back then, it was quite conservatively managed in terms of the the, the themes that we could cover. Um, the UAE is has sort of become more westernized in the last few years. You know, they, they don't work in Islamic week anymore. They work a, a sort of standard Monday to Friday. They acknowledge Israel on maps now where they never used to before. 
But um, 15 years ago, uh, it was a lot more conservative than that. So that colored some of the stories that we did. But you learn then, okay, you're going to write about, let's say, rural France. You're not going to write about the wineries, but you can still go and um, write about food, as long as it's not pork. Do they tell you, right, Jamie, you're going to go and write about these five restaurants in Paris, or do they say you're going to go to France? What do you want to write about? How was that? Exchange? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So we, we had, I, I was actually there twice. So I, I did two stints there. I did two years as a features writer from 08 to 10. And then I did a second one where I was deputy editor. So when I was deputy editor, it was much more fun because I basically was in charge of editorial then. So I could choose exactly what I wanted to what I wanted to write about, but it was client publishing. So um, they would often give us a destination list or preferred destinations that they would like us to to cover, especially if they were launching a new destination. Then we would we were absolutely beholden to to cover that, even when it was a place that uh, you know it wasn't maybe the most touristic destination. But we we would be expected to come up with some sort of story there. Now it didn't need to be like if we're writing about. Dallas, we don't need to, or Houston, let's say, we don't need to write about the oil industry. You can write about anything in Houston um, as long as it doesn't uh, sort of breach religious sensitivities and as long as it didn't cover anything that would upset the the corporate structure of Etihad at the time. But for example, when we launched flights to Morocco, my editor had already been um, to Marrakesh. So we couldn't write about Marrakesh. I couldn't find anyone that had anything nice to say about Casablanca. Um, and so I went down to the coast to learn to surf. So I did a story about learning to surf in Morocco. So that was purely something that I was interested in. And that was often the case, as long as they didn't really matter so much. They cared about the destination, um, but it was quite fun. You know, we could often we could often come up with uh, with themes um, of our own. And each one of us did a sort of classic, classic thing. If a friend was getting married somewhere in the world, then lo and behold, we would come up with a pitch that happened to put us there <laughs> uh, within a couple of days of the wedding. So, and, and they were quite good with that as well. Like if you, there would be no point in you flying back um, the day before a weekend, you know, you might as well have another couple of days there, either under under your own dime or, 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 or theirs. It didn't really matter. So it was, it was good. You know, I saw an awful lot of the world then. I earned decent money from the first stint. I um I saved up to go backpacking. Um, I met my my now ex, but she, she it was her long held dream to go backpacking around the world. And so, uh, after this sort of um, baptism into travel writing, I then found myself traveling full time for eighteen months after that. So it was quite an intense. I guess that's where a lot of the formative um, experiences took place. You know, what an incredible opportunity for a twenty five year old as well, particularly someone without connections and like you mentioned family background and that's we had tim hannigan on the podcast a few months ago the author of travel writing tribe and he's very sensitive to the idea that particularly in britain much of the travel writing aristocracy were the literal aristocracy you've written about your working class background in your wonderful article first class um business class working class and uh, which i will link to with this how did that background first of all coming from that background was travel writing something you were conscious of? Were you reading your upper class Patrick Lee Fermors and Colin Thubrons and thinking, I want to do that? Like, how did how did you set yourself on this trajectory? This is, I'm kind of past the embarrassment of it, but um, other than Paul Theroux, when I was a backpacker, I've never read any of the great travel writers. Um, and that is not, I'm not boasting when when I say that. I'm, I'm a poor reader at the best of times. But travel writing is never something that I ever read at all. 
something that I I only I read now, but more from a sort of educational point of view. Like, is is there like I'm almost studying technique rather than absorbing the book, if that makes sense. I guess I do a lot of my reading these days is like that, that I, I would rather read at a level that I can't reach in the hopes that it drags me up um, rather than read the majority of my contemporaries. Um, that sounds probably quite arrogant, but that's uh, genuinely that's how I read is to try and get get better. In terms of my background, yeah, I mean, we I, I grew up in a, what was effectively a, a single parent family and we didn't really go abroad very much. So travel was exotic, um, partly just because it was scarce to me. So everything was always kind of, uh, it, it just was very exciting. Uh, my grandfather had been in the Navy, so he used to tell us stories about travel that that, that, that certainly excited me as a, as a child, but it wasn't anything that I really set out to do or, or planned particularly. Like if, if that job in, in Dubai had not been based in travel, I don't know that it's necessarily something that I would have pursued, you know, and um, I'd done two travel stories for the newspaper here in Glasgow, uh, but that was basically because they didn't have anyone else to do it at the time. Uh, they used to get offers for press trips would come in and they would they would rotate them around the office. And so I happened to get a couple of them. But in terms of like knowing even that it was a, a career, I, I guess I didn't like it just wasn't something that came up on my on my radar at all. Um, and literally when I when I got asked to go on my first press trip, I thought that I had to pay for it. And I told the editor at the paper, I was like, I just can't, I can't do that. Like it's far too expensive. And she was like, Oh, that's not how that's not how this works. And so part of my motivation uh for doing it is sort of disbelief, continued disbelief that it's that's an achievable career. Uh, and then probably, yeah, no, no doubt part of it, so I, I'm a type 1 diabetic, so I have a small sensor here, I'm just on the lower part of my shoulder. Just above that, that's where I have my the working class chip on my shoulder. So that that is a, that is a powerful a powerful tool. Um, when it comes to when it comes to awards and stuff like that, I, I enter all of the awards. Um, I've won a few. And on some level, it's uh, a flat out class war for, for me. And I, I like recognition, especially because I'm, I'm very well aware that I didn't. And, and there's other people in the, within the travel writing community, although, although not that many, who are in the same position as me, where they didn't have a helping hand. They don't have a second job. They don't have a wealthy spouse. They don't have the knowledge that grandpapa's estate is going to come to them one day. But it, we're, we're in the minority. Um, but I think it's important... You know, there's a lot of talk about diversifying um, travel writing, and the, that's often meant, meant racially, um, you know, that it's it's far too white a trade, which it definitely is. It's also very male-dominated, and I'm aware I'm saying this as a, as a white man, but there's also a massive class imbalance as well. And I think that has as much to do with why uh, people don't have particularly diverse backgrounds within travel writing, you know. So a lot, I, and and I I understand it's been like that for a couple of hundred years because, as you said at the start, you know, literal aristocrats and and people who have other means are typically the the people who can, you know, start out in a base that means that you can give yourself wholly to this because you're not worried about how you're going to pay for your rent or feed yourself, you know. So yeah, it's a it's it's certainly a complicated a bit of a complicated business. So how do you find that that changed? things for you i mean because you didn't have this you know unlimited supply of money from another means you had to immediately hustle to get the gigs to be paid to to earn a living like as a job which is 
what I believe like a lot of people out there in the travel writing world would love to have that as their job, as that pays the bills. So we did you find yourself a, a minority as you were figuring that out and putting the piece yeah. in place? Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I really properly became freelance properly, properly in, in 2016. And for the first year, got into debt because I didn't really know what I was doing or how to make money properly. Stabilized a little bit after that, but was still in debt because I hadn't earned enough to get out of it, if you know what I mean. Things have actually been much better for me and for lots of travel writers since the pandemic, strangely. But um, it's a really, lots of people want to do the job. And, you know, you have to turn it into a joke, how you respond to people telling you how much they want to do your job. My standard response is, you think that, but let me show you my bank balance. You know, like a thing I used to have on my Twitter bio, a great uh, quote from James Salter, who was a fantastic American writer, who was a dogfighting pilot in the Korean War and then just switched to being an amazing novelist. And he also has a, a book of, of travel writing. And the quote on the front of it is, travel writing is something you do for money. Not a lot of money, but the working conditions can be pleasant. But that sort of suggestion that it is leisurely or should be leisurely is is an insane fallacy uh, because it is unbelievably difficult to 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 make money from it. Uh, and even now, um, I find that I have to, like for example, I, I'm I'm going traveling tomorrow and I'll I'll be on the road for the next two months, and my place will be on Airbnb then. So having strangers live in my home will make me as much money or in, certainly on other trips has made me as much money, if not more money than the actual writing has. So it's a real, it is a real balancing act all the time. And it can be absolutely brutal to try and make it a full-time profitable career. Um, to sort of underline that, like I, I'm still friends with the, um, the same guys I went to school with. We went to university together. There's a, there's a group of about, if everyone turns up, there's 15 or 16 of us. I just last year was able to buy an apartment and I'm the, I was the last one of the entire group not to have my own property. And I'm still the only one who's never owned a car. So, you know, it's, I have, I don't regret my decisions at all, but certainly my path into adulthood has been, has been slowed somewhat by my career choice. And so it's not a, it's not a career that you'll get rich on, but I think there's still, it still can be a career that gives you excellent rewards in other ways. Do you find this difference in perspective is evident in the kind of stories that you choose to write about, the kind of people that you choose to interview? Yeah, to a degree. I, th I think the thing about it is that I've, I'm very particular with the type of stories I do now. Um, back in the days of saying yes to everything, then I would, I would have done, I would have taken European stories, no problem. Um, and I, I still do occasional European stories. It's not like I'm against them, but I think that, you know, often like, let's say it's France, for example, there are people who are, who are based in France or who uh, have French spouse or can at the very least speak the language and they could and should do a better job than me, you know, because they can understand the culture in a way that I never will. Also, it's France. They wear onions around their neck and love cheese. You don't need to know anything else. That's it. So I think that I've, if I have a speciality or a thing that I've kind of cornered as my own is that I, I do places that are very far away either literally or conceptually. And I think that that's something that I've become, I tend to get those commissions now because 
I have a body of work that shows that I can do those stories without just turning up and having my mind blown. And, you know, I'm quite good at staying calm in the moment. In terms of the people I interview, yeah, sure, it's, it's always nice to, uh, to to interview real people. And especially if you get to write for a title that allows you to quote people directly, that allows for profanity or allows for mild controversy. Travel writing is very rarely journalism, but once in a while you can sneak some of it through if, you, if the editor's having an off day. So um, I like it when you can do that. Equally, I absolutely love interviewing properly upper-class people. I don't mean wealthy middle-class people. They're very boring most of the time. I mean insane upper-class people who may as well have been beamed in from the dark side of Jupiter to, to for me to talk to. I love it when it's somebody whose background is so utterly alien to mine. And I love it because there are of all the differences but also it's quite nice once in a while to sort of work out what things are similar you know and that they can be British or they can be you know I've interviewed princesses in the Middle East before I've interviewed mayors and political leaders in Japan before and it's just quite funny sometimes when I think to myself yep I I didn't grow up with anyone with that name or I don't know what it is like to eat a roast swan sandwich or whatever their background may be far away conceptually if not yes. necessarily exactly physically. exactly right exactly right on your your article that i reference again first class business class working class you it was during the moment uh during the pandemic i think you wrote it in late may and it, or it was published in late may anyway and everything travel was not happening travel writing was not happening and you took the opportunity to reflect a little bit on your career and and you said that you'd written you'd been published in every publication that you cared about um or that you desired to be published in except for the new york times uh and then you added a, an update that they did indeed uh in may 2021 so just a year after you published that they published a piece of yours on a place that is literally quite far away and a place that i have had a personal obsession with even though i've never actually been um called svalbard how did that piece come about well, it, so a little bit about my uh, complicated relationship with the Grey Lady. Um, so it, it, you know, I think the New York Times, in terms of papers, it, is absolutely not a publication without issues. And I think that at the moment they're mired in quite a lot of controversy with how they're covering the conflict in, in Israel and Palestine. You know, and they are a paper that makes mistakes, um, but they are also paper of, of substance. And what happened with them... The, the the sort of rancid rise of of Donald Trump allowed them to get a lot of subscribers. I think their subscriptions went to the highest they had reached since before the internet, because it was seen as a as a paper of protest or at least something that might annoy Donald Trump. So so people with um, centre left leanings uh, all all signed up for their the New York. Uh, Times subscription services. And as part of that, they launched um, th the 52 Places listicle that they bring out at the start of every year. They launched it as a job in maybe 2018. Yes, I think it was. And I applied for that job along with, I think it was 13,000 other people. And I got down to the last 25. Um, of course, I wasn't going to get the job. I'm not an American. And I don't speak any other languages and I, I wouldn't have fit the bill exactly. I think I could have done it. Like I think I had, my pitches and writing are good enough, but I was never going to get the job. But while I, after just after I had found out I wasn't getting it, they published the, the listicle and it included my hometown of Glasgow. And I was like, oh, this is insult upon injury now. Um, and I ended up talking to the New York Times 
travel editor at the time, and we went out for drinks in Brooklyn. I, I haven't had reason to be in New York. And I flirted as much as I could with him and thought uh, and said to him at the end, you know, it's a shame I can't write for your paper because they have this incredibly ring-fenced rule about freebies. Anything hosted, they cannot, they, they won't publish anything that has been hosted at all. And that applies also to the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. So the New York Times is not alone in that. However, where they are different is that they backdate it three years. So they say, if you have been hosted for anything at any point in the last three years while working for any title, you are ineligible to write for our newspaper, which means that like every time a hotel gives me a free night or a tour company gives me a guide for the day, I have to reset my three-year counter. So for a working travel writer, it just doesn't work. It's, it's not uh, non-viable, let's say. However, that travel, that travel journalist, uh, surely travel editor, he said, uh, well, let's see what we can do. And then two weeks later, he changed jobs within the paper. So I never did get into the, the times that way. During the pandemic, they launched a series called, I think it's called The World Through a Lens. And it was basically a photo essay. First and foremost, it's a photo essay with about 800 to 1,000 words of copy alongside it. And that was being managed by the photo desk, not by the editorial desk. And so they didn't ask these same questions about how you had been, how you make your money. They just said, show us the photos and what's the pitch. So I, I had been up to Svalbard twice by that point. And one of the places I went to, which I actually wrote about for New York, sorry, for National Geographic Traveller UK, was a, an abandoned Russian mining town called Pyramiden. So it's an extraordinary place. And it happened to be while I was there that there was a horror movie being shot because you've got this most amazing location that really fits that eerie sense of um, life having just upped and left and disappeared without any real explanation. Um, and I thought it was great at the time. Uh, the piece was quite well received at, at Nat Geo Traveller. But I had all these excess photos and a couple of years had passed so I, I put that together and, and sent it off to the picture desk at the New York Times and they, and they liked it. And so they, they, they ran it. They, the piece, they wanted to edit it quite a bit. The fact-checking process was sort of really refreshing um, in the, how exact it was. You know, often, I mean, British, the standards of British journalism compared to American are way, way lower, uh, as are the budgets. So everything is kind of smash and grab in the UK. And that, that includes, very much includes travel rating, whereas in the, in the US... The rates are higher, the inconvenience is higher, but I honestly believe the standard is higher as well. There's one or two publications in the UK that I would exempt from that, especially the Financial Times, but mo most of the time the standards are just a bit lower. Um, and so even though it was just 800 words to go with a, a photo essay, I had to answer a lot of questions about that piece. And they weren't questions of technique or, you know, can you rephrase that it was more like can you prove to us that this is what you've you've say here, this is the northernmost grand piano in the world, but how do you know that? And so you have to justify everything quite a lot. But it was still, of course, after all those years, and especially because I had actually named it in that piece, the, the blog piece that you're mentioning, the one that was written at a low point, to then have to go back and correct it was quite nice to be able to say that, yeah, I finally did get to write for, for that title. The really strange thing I remember was that they paid me by check. Like they sent a check all the way in the post from New York. And then I had to go to the local bank in Glasgow and ask, like, can I cash checks in a foreign currency. I don't really know how any of this works. So the bank took about 15% of the fee. <laughs> but but nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, it, it was something to be genuinely proud of. And actually, they've asked to see some new photos for, for a different story as well. So I might be getting back in touch with them soon. But it is, it is almost reassuringly difficult to get into the New York Times.
re reassuringly difficult is a good way of putting it. And that 13,000 people applying for that one role. Mm -hmm. It is fascinating that the incredible stringency of this law around travel, like that almost precludes full-time working travel writers from being mm -hmm. able to publish arguably one of the and arguably one of the most famous publications in the world like you found mm -hmm. a, a elegant way to to square that circle though yeah and and you know the, my, my problem with the way that they do that and, and i don't want to, to to just talk about class but they're creating a real problem there because what they're saying is that the only people then who can write for the new york times are new york times staffers or people are so who are so gigantically wealthy that they can afford to pay for their own travel permanently basically or ironically people who will lie to them about how how they make their income so while i understand the sentiment of what the new york times does i i do not think it actually follows all the way through to a logical conclusion I, and i know that the replacement travel editor the one who's there now has been absolutely unapologetic about her policy and she she believes wholeheartedly that what she's doing is for the best and it's for the most honest and reasonable approach and, and I just and, and I know that there are dozens of, of other travel writers just completely disagree with that because the implication is that you're fundamentally dishonest for one thing and and secondly I just like I think that they would be much better off if they did it the way that their rival titles at the Washington Post and the and the Wall Street Journal do which is to say you can't take anything on this trip but we'll give you expenses that's how it used to be you know and I know that what that used to do was create journalists would come back from trips with sprawling bar bills and no recollection of what they'd actually done and then say, can I, here's 500 words I just made up, you know, so you, you can't have it go completely the other way. But I do think that the idea that you backdate it for an arbitrary three years and say, that's the, that's the period that we need you to have been pure in your, in your funding. I, I just don't, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't follow. You said yes to that one swan sandwich and now you're. Back <laughs> the I know. Route. I wish I'd paid the 25 pounds for it now. <laughs> um, so just to want to ask the, just thank you so much for the time you spent with us. Just a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. um, one is an, another one of your your achievements. We've spoken about New York Times. You alluded to being Travel Writer of the Year at the Travel Media Awards. You also share an honor with very few Westerners, two of whom being Lady Gaga and Justin Bieber, uh, an award issued by the government of Japan. Do you want to just share that story? So when I mentioned earlier on that I had saved up to, to go backpacking, um, in, I started that in 2010, April 2010, um, and was still going a year later. So on March the 11th, 2011, I was in Bolivia in, in the city of Sucre when the um, Great East Japan earthquake happened, um, devastated the northeast coast, um, killed an estimated around 20,000 people um, and changed how Japan sources its energy. And it's been back in the news as recently as two weeks ago because they're starting to release some of the contaminated water into the, well, they say it's been decontaminated into the Pacific. So it's a it's a sort of forever problem that the the um, the, the meltdown at Fukushima. It felt a bit close to home because of one of my very best friends, actually a guy that I'm, I'm going to go and see this week. Um, he was living in Japan at the time. So I had that sort of personal connection to it. And a feeling that a lot of people did, which was a sort of very distant helplessness, that there was no way to get there to do anything. Six months passed, I was getting to the end of uh, my backpacking experience, um, very tired, very happy to be not traveling for a while. But there was an advert that I had seen, I can't remember exactly where, it was in a newsletter of some one stripe or another, 
uh, about a thing called the Travel Volunteer Project. And there's a small company uh, in Kanazawa, which is in the west coast of Japan. Um, and they, their company was split in two. One element was to send Japanese tourists around the world, often in the little groups that they feel comfortable traveling in. And then the other half of the company was to do with inbound tourism. And inbound tourism had dropped to absolute zero. So even six months after the earthquake, no one wanted to visit Japan uh, because they were worried about nuclear meltdown, probably Godzilla, all manner of you know unreasonable fears about Japan at the time. And very few people, and I include myself in this up until I went, but you know, it's it's hard to really get a concept of how big Japan is because its neighbor is China. So on the map, China is so utterly gargantuan that Japan looks like a small country. If you push all the islands together, Japan has more or less the same amount of land as Germany, and you wouldn't regard Germany as a small country. So Japan is really big and stretched out, and the idea that you have this one, you have a problem on one coast, does not make it a national problem. It's a regional problem. So this company it was going to have to sack half of its staff because no tourists would come. And so they launched this, actually not a million miles away from the New York Times thing, and it, it was advertised as a dream job. And it was to, to, to visit all 47 prefectures um, over just 100 days and blog about it every day. Um, my ex is a photographer, uh, and so we made a joint application to to do it, and we were shortlisted and then flown out to Japan, uh, and in a very Japanese fashion, dressed in kimonos with television cameras stuck in our faces and with I think four other parties were on the shortlist for to to be selected whether to 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 get it done or not and I remember you know most of the most of the people that we were against had reasons for doing it um one of them was Ukrainian and so she grew up in the shadow of Chernobyl so she understood very well what reputational damage and physical and psychological damage nuclear catastrophe can can have on a place another woman was a, was a food writer who had a had already had a sort of quite developed appreciation of japanese food and she wanted to write about how the food varied across the 47 prefectures um there was quite a cynical american couple who wanted to get married <laughs> and have have it paid for by the volunteer project and then there was one korean guy who i don't really know how, why he was there and i don't think he did either i think he just wanted to go for the three or four days for the <laughs> for the selection process uh, and then there was uh katie and i and I remember um, basically going for quite a cynical approach with it, which was to say to them, our main asset is not that you will make us happy. There's a sort of like negative version of the Churchill thing about what can what can you do for your country, you know, or not what your country can do for you. So I said, you know, this doesn't matter what this will do for us. It'd be great for us, of course. But if you choose us, you're getting a professional writer and a professional photographer for 100 days for nothing. And that is worth, no, nobody will be able to promote your country better than us. And then the live vote happened and the first 20 votes, none of them went to us. And I was, I remember leaning across and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I completely, that sort of quite brutal <laughs> straight approach has not worked, you know. And this American couple who wanted to get married and cherry blossom or whatever it was they wanted to do, were getting a lot of the votes. But then the business people had the vote. And then I think the next 50 votes or something, almost all of them went to us and it ended up a complete blowout. We won very comfortably. Um, but of course, you've, you've played the card of we're going to give you the best service here. Then have to do that. You know, you can't you cannot now say here's a selfie. Will that do for today? You know, you have to. 
uh, I took it very seriously and, and so did um, my ex. And so we, we really, really went for it. But after 10 days, you know, we were still jet lagged. We were completely overwhelmed. It was our first time in Japan. And it is a, an experience that, you know, you. I read recently a, a great description of it in a true crime book called People Who Eat Darkness by the Japan correspondent from the Times, whose name escapes me at the moment. And he was like, the problem with going to Japan is that you lose everything in terms of your ability to understand what's going on. First of all, it's like a 10-hour time difference, so your jet lag is pronounced. Secondly, you lose the ability to listen to language, but then unlike lots of other places, you also lose any ability to read it. So you are completely dependent in this society, which is famously different to anywhere else on Earth. And so it can be a really hard place to adjust to. Um, And so... We, for the first 10 days, we were completely overwhelmed and exhausted. And I remember us having a very serious discussion about maybe we need to ask to stop. You know, maybe this is actually too much for us. And then after, on day 11, we went to Ishinomaki and Onagawa, which were two towns that were essentially raised from the map by the effects of the tsunami. And we stayed in a camp with volunteers who'd been there for six months, people who'd cleared bodies out, people who were still finding personal belongings of um, people who disappeared without trace, people who had really like lived the life. And then the fact that we were quite tired, but we were getting to go and stay in hotels and eat food and travel around the whole country. Yes, it was hard work. It's the hardest work I've ever done. But compared to what they had done, it was it was really small fry. So that's galvanized us an awful lot. Um, we told the organizers how tired we were and that we would need to take a few things off the daily schedules. But that what we could do with each blog was I, we made a commitment to never write about the same thing twice. So we would pick like a theme for every single day. But yeah, it was 100 days with no days off. And then on Christmas Day, we went back to the uh, tsunami zone and we had Christmas party with tsunami refugees, effectively. Um, and it was great. Except the musical statues was terrible because Japanese people will follow instructions to the nth degree like to we'll be on the point of logic or fun so when you tell them don't move when the music stops they follow that like it's like in in the terminator when you tell him to do something he just absolutely completely does it japanese kids are like that so musical statues the supposedly fun game after 40 minutes we were like yeah we're just going to call it a draw everyone's a winner (laughs) this is impossible um so yeah then we flew home on boxing day and it was it was great it was something that changed my experience of travel, my experience of life, uh, you know, to, to see a, a country like that, uh, a time of desperation, um, and to see the outpouring of help uh, and support towards us, because we were willing to to help, or we perceived that, that, that what our project was, was for the Japanese national good. And that sort of funny little certificate that we got, yeah, we were the, we were some of the only people to ever, foreigners ever to be awarded it alongside Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga. Um, that was, love- that was a lovely bit of recognition, but it was, you know, it was kind of insignificant compared to a lot of the the interactions and conversations we'd had over the previous three months. What a riveting story and, yeah, incredible experience. I can imagine how hard it would have been. Jamie, where can folks go to read more of your writing, some of the stories that you've referenced just to follow your your travels and your work? Yeah, I um, so at the moment I'm... Um, I, I I split my income quite across quite a few different titles. The people that I'm working for at the, at the most at the moment is probably the Financial Times. Um, they have a pretty rigid paywall, but um, I've heard rumor that there is a way around it. <laughs> 
if you Google my surname and FT and then one of the subjects that I've written about, you can, it's for some reason, the link that you then click through Google circumnavigates the, uh, or circumvents the, um, the paywall. Um, so there's that. I also have a website, which is just my name. So it's jamielafferty.com, although I am long overdue updating it. This is a good motivator to, to get me back on that. Uh, I'm on Instagram as well. And so my handle there is travel underscore journal. Um, yeah, and then actually I'm I'm traveling for two months, as I mentioned, but um, for seven weeks of that, I'm going to be working as a guide on a, on a boat, on a ship down in Antarctica. So um, you could always sign up to to travel on a very expensive cruise with Aurora Expeditions, and then I can teach you photography as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's something that I've done. It started last year, diversify my career a little bit. Um, and it's quite nice. You know, the, the thing about travel writing is it can be a little bit isolating. You're often alone. So I get colleagues for seven weeks and we're working in a semi-hostile environment. So it's quite nice to to be part of a team that's pulling together like that. It's quite a different experience when you've spent a long time traveling, but also a lot of that time alone. Sounds fascinating both for you and for the your fellow travelers. Well, mm. thank you so much for the time you spent with us today, Jamie. Thank really you. appreciate it. No problem at all. Thanks for listening, everyone. And don't forget to check out our new travel stories published weekly on intrepidtimes.com. See you next time.